This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Monday, March 11th, 2019, from Slated to the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And yes, big news, big Algerian news, the leader of Algeria, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, will not seek a fifth term. He will not run. Of course, he has not walked or pretty much even wheeled himself for about five and a half years now. The 82-year-old Bouteflika had a stroke in 2013. He's rarely been seen in public. In fact, his last address to the nation was in 2014, right after he won election. It was not, uh, shall we say, freewheeling. And what's worse for his countrymen, the guy doesn't even tweet. I wonder what's the worst situation to be in. A country with a bad, very active leader or a bad, inactive leader. We have a bad, hyperactive leader, but he is wholly ineffective. He hasn't had a stroke or at least not one all at once. But Bouteflika in Algeria will step aside or whatever form of locomotion he can achieve and make way for a successor. In a summary of this story in The Economist, there was a fascinating reference to the consequences of having an old and infirm leader who sometimes does wacky things. And they were talking about Nigeria, where the president of Nigeria, the doddering old president, banned toothpicks. Seriously. So the toothpick ban, (laughs) this has been going on for a while in Nigeria. I found an article from the early aughts about banning toothpicks, but then the ban was relaxed. But lately, it's been blamed again for bad economic times. Here's an article from 2017. The Central Bank of Nigeria has blamed the ongoing economic recession in Nigeria for overdependence on importation of goods from other countries. A top official said it was shameful that Nigeria still imported items such as cucumber, apple, and eggs from South Africa, beef from Zambia, and toothpicks from China. He, however, assured Nigeria that the country will move out of the current recession before the end of the year. This is a trope. This is one of those things that you just say it to an Algerian and they know what you're talking about and they get all upset and they say, we used to make things in this country like little bits of wood to work out food that was stuck in between your teeth, maybe even imported beef from Zambia. I came across an op-ed blaming the economic woes of the country on the fact that toothpicks were being imported. Here's this op-ed from a couple years ago. Nigeria is fortunate to have been blessed with 1.7 million hectares of bamboo, a primary source of raw materials for the production of toothpicks. Sadly, it has not been the case, i.e. that Nigeria has produced toothpicks. Nigerians in 2014 and 2015 reportedly spent 2.71 and 1.32 million respectively importing toothpicks into the country. Wow. First of all, huge decline from 2014 to 2015. Don't know what set that off. Second of all, I was blown away by the Nigerian appetite for toothpicks until I looked up the conversion rate. At the 2014-2015 exchange rates to the dollar, 2 million Nigerian naira, and it has cratered a little bit, That was about $10,000. So I'm going to say that toothpicks or the consumption of Chinese toothpicks were not, in fact, crashing the economy. So what happened was the Nigerian president was away getting treatment for an illness in Britain for months, like half a year at a time. And when that was away, they had sensible policies. And then he comes back and he wants to pursue the ban on toothpicks. I guess the ministers say, let him have his ban on toothpicks. And he was keen to put rumors to rest, rumors 
that he was a clone. Somebody resources that I'm clone. <laughs> and then he clarifies. Celebrate my 70th anniversary, and I'm still going strong. <laughs> I say, let Mr. Buhari have his little pointless war on little pointy wood. On the show today, I spiel about a policy that hits us around this time of year, namely the time. And I have to warn you, I come out swinging. I'm impassioned. I am not one of those meh style moderates you've been hearing about. But first, Steve Pruitt is Wikipedia's most prolific editor, which doesn't quite get at the enormity of his contribution. Let's put it this way. You know Wikipedia? It's this close to being called Wikistevia. By some estimates, citation needed, okay, it's Time Magazine. By Time Magazine's estimates, he has contributed in some way to a third of all of Wikipedia's content. Now, if you listen to the gist, you know I love to play this game, comparing the lengths of Wikipedia entries. I think we once demonstrated that Howard Stern's entry was longer than Pol Pot's. Well, today I came across a great one. Trey Burke III, he plays for the worst team in the NBA, the Knicks, and he averages only 20 minutes a game. That guy has a Wikipedia entry of over 7,000 words with 313 sources cited. Let us compare him to Homer. Homer, the Greek poet Homer, perhaps the most important voice in the Western canon, whose Wikipedia entry is 3,400 words with 69 citations. I mean, I understand if, say... Tyreek Evans or Victor Oladipo had a longer Wikipedia entry than Homer, but Trey Burke? Anyway, Steve Pruitt is here with all the answers because of course he is. He wrote Wikipedia. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Wikipedia, you all know Wikipedia. It is by far the greatest repository of knowledge the world has ever known. By contrast, let's talk about the great library of Alexandria, 
There are between 40,000 and 400,000 scrolls there. Wikipedia has 5.8 million articles just in English. How do they get there? You probably know this too. They're all written and researched by you and me, although not necessarily you and me, but definitely by my next guest. Stephen Pruitt is by far the greatest editor of Wikipedia articles. He is by far the most prolific. He lives in the Washington, D.C. area. Hello, Stephen Glad to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you as well. And your first article that you ever edited was about who and why'd you edit it? So the first article that I remember creating, which is back in the days when IPs could create articles, uh, was about Peter Francisco, who is my great, 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 great grandfather. Wait, you don't mean the Virginian giant, do you? Yes, sir. The very same. (laughs) I uh, see so you've read up on him. Yeah, yeah. You could Wikipedia a whole bunch of things and figure this out. I'll be perfectly honest. Not a lot of people outside of Central Virginia remember that he existed. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, are you involved in any debates within the Wikipedia editing community about what does or doesn't qualify as notable? So I'm not talking about standards of truth. I know what side you're on there. Sure. But there is a debate that not everything deserves either an entry or a full accounting. I have tended not to get deeply involved in the argument, but I make my position known if anybody asks, um, and I've said it at times on my talk page. I'm an inclusionist. I feel like the more the merrier. I will say that a lot of, of that debate comes in the arena of people who are still alive. I don't edit a lot in that world, except little cosmetic edits, you know, fixing typos, categorization, that sort of thing. But for actually writing articles, I tend to write about people who have been dead for a while so I can see what sorts of sources there are about them. What are your personal areas of interest and how do your personal areas of interest show up in which articles you've written or edited? So I'm a humanities geek and I always have been and a history geek. And I often talk about editing with Wiki Project Women in Red, which is designed to close the gender gap on Wikipedia. And for one thing, that dovetails very well with my interests, because my senior project in college was actually about a Polish woman artist, and I've always had an interest in women artists and um, interest in their work. The bulk of my editing right now is um, smaller cosmetic, as I talk about, because, you know, I do a a lot of that back-end stuff goes into... uh, um, a lot of what I'm doing. But when I write articles, they tend to be on women artists or musicians, uh, writers sometimes, um, sometimes uh, women in politics. The other thing, I don't do as much of this anymore because a lot of the work has been done, but the National Register of Historic Places, Wiki Project National Register has done incredible work in the past decade documenting structures, helping to preserve history of the structures, uh, photographing structures. I've done a lot of photography for it around Virginia. We're documenting, again, we're documenting history in a way that traditional encyclopedias don't because they don't focus on the National Register sites so much unless they're the big ticket items, you know, like uh, places like the um, Masonic Memorial in Alexandria or the Lincoln Memorial here in D.C. Do you find it as satisfying to do all the cosmetic work that you're doing as opposed to writing an original article or getting in there and taking a small article about a woman artist who should be significant but is being underappreciated? Not necessarily. It requires a different set of interests. I believe very strongly that the encyclopedia should be easily navigable, and that's one of the reasons I've continued with categorization schemes and things like that. But nothing really can compare to writing an article about 
something, especially something that didn't exist online. And that's why always try to get back to that sooner or later, because to me, that's what the encyclopedia really is all about. When there is an entry, an existing entry about a woman politician or an artist, is the problem usually that there is sexist language or a sexist way of looking at uh, her career or just that it's underreported and underwritten and just not enough? So it, it, it depends a lot on uh, the field, a lot on the story. It's not perhaps immediately visible from the article so much as the article compares to other articles. For instance, when you see an article about a male scientist, there will be a section to talking about his personal life, his mm -hmm. wife and his children. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, the articles about women in science, for instance, will say she in the first paragraph, she was the wife of somebody. So there's this always defining women in relation to their relationships as opposed to their jobs, for instance. So your editing name, your nom de Wikipedia is, say it for me. Seramantio di Nicolao. Who was uh, in, the, in the Puccini opera Gianni Schicchi. Yes, he's the notary. It's a he's the notary. fairly small role. Yeah. yeah. It's a fairly small role. And so this gets to a question, not a problem, though I have criticized Wikipedia, which I love, and I think you do a great job. But there is, I'm all for inclusionism. And yet, if you compare the uh, length and depth of an article on the Hundred Years' War to the length and depth of an article on Howard Stern, and you find that Howard Stern is much longer, there's something wrong with that. And I wouldn't want to tell the Howard Stern maniacs, you know, to dial it back. But if this is the repository of human knowledge, we're giving an odd accounting of how important, not that word count equals importance, but we are somehow misrepresenting the relative importance of certain things against other things, I think. But do you agree and should anything be done about that? Well, you're not wrong about that. And uh, that goes to the fact that editors edit their interests yes. and editors edit what they know about. It is a problem. I will say there has been a lot of focus on trying to diversify the editorship and editor base in recent years especially, and it's a work in progress. Now, the reason why I said that perhaps uh, your, your screen name and the Puccini opera relates to my small complaint about relative importance is I'm, I'm on the page for the opera Gianni Schicchi, and it's quite long. It's 80 footnotes long. And I was wondering, did you, did you write that? No. Um, okay. A lot of the opera articles existed before I got there. Okay. And then I compared it to Jay-Z's The Blueprint. And I don't know how one compares a so-called minor opera by Puccini to what's considered the greatest, one of the greatest rap albums of all time. And I'm just taking Jay-Z because I recognize his greatness just like Puccini's, but I don't have either one of these in, uh, on my personal playlist. And it's just much, much shorter. It's, it's half as long. And I was wondering if that's a reflection of the passion of the opera fan, the dearth of great writers on hip hop, coincidence, is it valid, you know, what, to, to take this tangible example, why does that minor opera rate twice as much as this major rap album? Well, you've hit upon both reasons. Some of it is because there's um, of, of passion. I found the Opera Wiki Project um, is very, very good at writing in depth, which is something I expect from a lot of opera writers in general. And part of that is simply age, I think. Part of that is 
Verdi's been dead now for just over 100 years. So you have 100 years of reviews and scholarship that you can turn to. And that's part of it. And yes, part of it is the field. But I think some of that is unique to the field of opera. And does your uh, day job, which is at the, uh, you work in records and information at U.S. Customs and Border Protection, now that they know, I mean, you've been named to Time Magazine's 25 Mm -hmm. most influential people on the list. Are they monitoring you to make sure you don't do this during your work periods? I honestly could not tell you. (laughs) (laughs) There has been no change at work since you were named to that Time Magazine list? No. No, things continue apace. Now, on that, in that article, I think it said that you had... You had edited a third of the English language articles. That seems, Mm -hmm. what does that mean, edited? Like had an edit on the page? It seems almost impossibly high to me. Well, and and it is, to be fair. I've been discussing that with a couple of folks on my talk page. There are stats available. Um, It doesn't surprise me that stats are available, but I didn't know where to find them. Thinking of it the way that I do, which is an edit either in article space or in talk space, I count both of them as having had some kind of a fingerprint on the article. I've done at least one edit to about 1.4 million articles on Wikipedia, which is probably closer to a quarter. If there were a perfectly constructed list of the most influential people on the internet, because I think a lot of the people who are included in Time Magazine's list are done so to make a point or for celebrity, but... In all modesty, would you say that you should at least bear consideration for the authoritative list of one of the most influential people on the internet? In all modesty, I'm not sure I should have been on the list in the first place, to be perfectly honest, because a lot of what I'm doing is taxonomy. Now, there's not, nothing wrong with that, taxonomy and framework and navigation. But when you're getting into the work of actually writing the encyclopedia. And this is something that I come back to often when I talk to people about it, when I talk to friends about it. We're changing the canon. So arguably, I I took the point and believe me, I was A, flattered and B, um, never so foolish as to say no thank you because it only does you good for your name to appear in Time magazine like that. Yeah, you you saw it and you saw and you said, okay, citation needed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's one way of putting it, yeah. Is it, I get the sense, I mean, since you've been at it for so long, you don't look at Wikipedia's uh, place of toxicity like so much of the rest of the internet is said to be. I don't know if you look at it as a utopia, but you certainly seem to get a lot out of it and have a lot of uh, respect for what it is and represents. And also, it seems to me that you think it's more or less on the functional as opposed to dysfunctional side. What is it about either the people behind Wikipedia or the structure of Wikipedia that makes it something to take a lesson from? I think it's less, it's less the structure and it's more the purpose. You'll find plenty of, of trolls, p- plenty of people who have agendas. There's plenty of that stuff going on. I think administrators, even if, if we are spread thin on the ground, because I am also an administrator, uh, knock some of it away. Another thing that helps, too, is administrators are not spending as much time cleaning up vandalism because there's a bot that does that. There's a, a, a bot that cleans up obvious vandalism. And if that bot didn't exist, we'd be in a lot worse shape. But it has very much the potential for toxicity. And I think a big part of the reason it hasn't exploded into toxicity yet is people are aware that that can happen and they work very hard to prevent it from happening. 
Stephen Pruitt has made nearly three million edits on Wikipedia. This has gotten him named uh, Time Magazine's one of one of the twenty five most influential people on the internet. Thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us a little bit. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, for inviting me on. And now the spiel. If it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press. But if it's the second Sunday in March, it's Meet the Press with a kind of bleary, crusty eye. There's a lot to chew on. We're going to turn to the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, who joins me now from Los Angeles. And on Spring Forward Day, I'm very grateful for you getting up that extra hour early. Congressman Schiff, welcome back to Meet the Press, sir. Perhaps the reason that host Chuck Todd made that acknowledgement to Representative Adam Schiff was that he, Chuck Todd, had just taken a considerable amount of guff from Sherrod Brown. Senator, Leave it at that, Chuck. Senator Sherrod Brown. <laughs> You're short. You'd be, it's always joyful being on your show. Well, that I, I appreciate. That. It's Sunday morning, right, cup of always. coffee, and you've sprung forward. Even, that even, I appreciate. Even when the time changes and you make me get up an hour earlier. <laughs> Senator, I will And then leave you it broadcast there. it later, and people don't know how early we got up. So. <laughs> Listen to Senator Brown giving it to host Todd. You made me get up an hour early. You made me. In fact, it is the other way around. You, Senator Brown, as a member of the U.S. Senate, you are literally the ones who made us all get up an hour earlier through neglect or at least not correct the horrific bill that mandated this. Oh, perhaps you've not heard of the Uniform Time Act, Public Law 89-387, passed by an act of Congress in 1966, mandating daylight saving time for half the year. And you blithely blither on about sleep debts through crusted eyelids when you were the author of your own crusts. Now, there is a bill in the House of Representatives and a bill in the Senate to adopt one time, which would be daylight saving time, what we now call daylight saving time. It is sponsored by Senator Rubio and Congressman Buchanan. They are both of Florida. They have quite idiotically called this the Sunshine Protection Act. Great way to antagonize Georgia and Alabama, guys. But it is such an obvious fix. And it is something that only the federal government can do. It would make all of our lives immeasurably better. It would forever attach itself to whatever president championed this idea. No more standard time. No more switching the clock. We adapt daylight saving time forever. And into the cool, clear light of the future, we shall walk. And yet, when presidential candidate Kirsten Gillibrand was asked about this idea on the Love It or Leave It podcast, she was decidedly in the Leave It camp. I don't want it to be dark in the morning. I get up early. I work out at 6. It's not helpful to me. It's less helpful to me. I have to get up at 5.30. It's really dark, and I don't like it. And I get my ass out of bed, and I go do my spin class, and I do my Pilates and my yoga, and I'm in bed by 10, for This God is a sakes. filibuster. Too bad. Incorrect. Wait for a day. Senator Gillibrand is at 0% in the most recent Iowa poll. She will tell herself something about name recognition or fundraising or sexism. No. 
It's because the obvious issue that would differentiate her and define her was lobbed over to her like a big fat volleyball set, and she lost it in the glare of her goddamn beloved 5.15 a.m. sun. We have a lot of fun here on The Gist championing such policies as the earned income tax credit, multilateralism, voter expansion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All good ideas. But I am as serious about changing this head-in-the-sand policy about standard time as I am everything I've ever talked about. And then we can eliminate pennies and next ban puppy mills. Those, those politicians of America, those are three layup issues that could get you the presidency or at least the nomination. When you're running against 32 other people, why not be the puppy mill candidate? Makes no sense. Will the candidates champion these issues? No, because what they like are impossible pie-in-the-sky overhauls of entrenched systems that hundreds of millions of people count on. You know what? Let's scrap private health care. What? 75% of people like private health care? No, let's talk about that. How about puppy mills? No one likes puppy mills. Let's not even talk about puppy mills. In fact, right here, right now, I'm not going to talk about puppy mills. I'm going to keep it on daylight saving time. Every study that they've ever done shows that there would be so many enormous benefits just to adopt daylight saving time. It would help people with strokes, as in to have fewer. It would decrease bank robberies. It would decrease heart attacks and auto accidents. It would reduce childhood obesity. It would cut grousing by populist Rust Belt senators 85%, according to a recent survey. And it would be so easy to implement. Instead of spring forward, fall back, we spring forward and then never go back. We just never go back again. It would be a broad, sweeping, beneficial change, and it would require no effort. In fact, to implement it, you'd merely have to stop telling people to do this thing that they always forget to do. Just one year, stop with the, hey, remember to fall backs, and that's it. You have your broad, sweeping, society-transforming policy. You're welcome. And once we do that, then, then it clears up some room in our mind where we have to try to remember, wait a minute, is it trust fall forward, spring back to life? Don't worry about that. You can dedicate your mental bandwidth to, is it liquor before beer or beer before liquor? Never sick or never fear. And then with all the daylight saving time, you get an extra hour sleep after drinking too much liquor or beer. Now, this is an issue that draws interest twice a year, the very days that we change the clocks. But I think that's because we're all too groggy and busy and having strokes and and getting bank robbed to fully debate it other days of the year. Now, granted, this is an issue that seems to only draw interest twice a year, you know, the day we change the clocks. But I think that's because on the other days of the year, we're all too groggy and busy having strokes and getting bank robbed to fully debate the issue. Also, we do, we do think about this twice a year, and that's two days more a year than most Americans think about Space Force, and the president can't shut up about that one. The president, Donald J. Trump, by the way, he actually supports the idea of permanent daylight saving time, which I know is a hurdle. It's a hurdle that I fear we have to overcome. You might be saying, wait a minute, you're, uh, so far I was convinced this was a good idea, then I found out Donald Trump endorses it. I, I really fail to see how something could be both logically sound on the one hand and yet endorsed by Donald Trump on the other hand. Never fear, never fear. Because while there are many empirical reasons to go to round-the-clock daylight saving time, that is not why Trump supports it. 
There are economic benefits for society. There are health benefits for the average American. Again, that's not why Donald Trump supports it. Donald Trump supports it, not for the sound moral reasons, but because he could make money on it. One of the biggest beneficiaries of full daylight saving time, golf. More daylight equals more golf. The golf industry estimated that the game could increase revenue by $400 million if daylight saving time was extended by just one month. You go the whole year. And by the way, that $400 million, that's 1986 numbers. So I think it means a cool billion to the world of golf. And Donald Trump owns some golf. So Donald Trump's going to make some money off of it. Fine. I say we still do it. It's still a good idea. Among the other candidates, Cory Booker actually tweeted, we should get rid of daylight savings time. Two mistakes there. It's daylight saving, not savings. And also, I think he means we should permanently embrace daylight saving time. Common mistake. I sometimes also say daylight savings time. I did it in this interview with Pete Buttigieg. What's the deal with Indiana and daylight savings time? Oh, dear. This is a tough one. Uh, how much time do we have? I got a good story about this. We probably don't have quite enough time. Um, <clears throat> so look, we're really struggling to figure out exactly what time zone everybody ought to be in. But but we're on daylight savings time, and I think it's stable for now. I'm a morning person. Uh, sorry, I'm not a morning person. Okay. Uh, I'm required to be a morning person for work. So mm-hmm. I would benefit with a little more sunlight in the mornings uh, versus the evenings. But uh, uh, that's just me, and I would be hesitant to impose that on anybody else. It's so funny because Kirsten Gillibrand asked the same question on a different podcast. Podcast, by the way, asking the best questions, said, I am a morning person, therefore I like the daylight savings time in the morning. You say you like it because you're not a morning person. I guess there's a coalition of people who just want well, sunlight in the morning. Look, the problem with with New York is on the eastern edge of the eastern time zone, and we're on the western edge of the eastern time zone. So here in the wintertime, it's not even light at like 9 in the morning or somewhere between 8 and Mm -hmm. 9. I like our our late sunsets in the summertime, but people trying to put kids to bed when the sun's still up at uh, 9.30 might view it a little differently. Well, it is true. I looked it up. This July 4th, the sun is going to set at 9.30 p.m. in South Bend, Indiana. But that's going to happen anyway. That's going to happen anyway with our current plan of daylight saving time only when we have it, which is during summer. By the way, not the time to save daylight. But if they were to adopt my plan, permanent daylight saving time, they would have a nice winter sunset of 6.15 p.m. on December 4th. Right now, the sun will set in South Bend at 5.15, and it will set at a preposterous 4.29 at the eastern end of the eastern time zone, i.e. Brooklyn. We need standard time, a lot less than we need a lot of things we have, like ethanol subsidies and corporate tax cuts and an extradition treaty with Albania for the crime of bigamy. We have that. We literally have an extradition treaty with Albania for bigamy. All the science is behind permanent daylight saving time. All the good sense is behind it. And yes, unfortunately, Donald Trump is behind it too. Still, standardizing daylight saving time and never changing the clock again is literally an idea whose time has come. In fact, came about an hour ago. And that's it for today's show. Every week we will send you a newsletter. It's at slate.com slash just news. And every week in that newsletter, we will give you links to a bunch of articles I liked and all the shows we did for the week, but also the answer to a trivia question. I'm going to lay the trivia question on you now. What is the connection 
between the 2004 record of the year, the Grammy award-winning record clocks, and the concept of daylight saving time. I know you're thinking, that's not a trivia question, clocks, daylight saving time. No, here's how you have to play the game. You have to answer the question only through human beings. You cannot mention the concept of time or the physical object of clocks or time pieces. So anyway, connect clocks to daylight saving time through people. Speaking of people, Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader are people who produce the gist. They are also the number three and seven most prolific contributors to Woke Wikipedia. Wokey Wikipedia is an online reference guide that takes representation of the Kalmari community very seriously. They should not be referred to as seafood. Also, Greedo would appreciate a trigger warning. TJ Raphael is top editor for Mookiepedia, a reference guide to all of life's little Mookies. Mookie Betts, Mookie Wilson, Spike Lee's character in Do the Right Thing. That's it. I think I think I named all the Mookies. The gist. I am a top editor at Ponypedia, the official open source reference for My Little Pony, Fluttershy, 7,000 words, Applejack, only 5,000. I've got to correct that. Oomperoo, deperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>